Hi everyone, Mike Guis. My name is Kara Romero. I'm the director of the Indigenous Program of Bioneers. I've been with Bioneers now for three years, and I have the wonderful job of co-producing and designing the Indigenous Forum alongside Melissa Nelson of the Cultural Conservancy and Tom Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network. The Indigenous Forum was co-founded by those two, and I came on to uh, help develop the program a few years ago. Uh, what we've been able to do in the past couple years is a few things. Uh, we have begun filming and recording and editing the content here in the Indigenous Forum. And what we hope to do with that is magnify the voices of the Native leaders that grace our stage here. And those become uh, useful to not only the public, but to Native Studies educators across the country, as well as our Beaming Bioneers Network so that we can help carry these indigenous messages further than just this audience that's here. I also work with the uh, Native um, Indian Ed Department through San Francisco, uh, as well as Intertribal Friendship House, the Native American Health Organization, to bring Native youth to the conference. We're getting more and more this year. There, We have a, a great big group over here that we're honored to have here this year. Um, we also work on traditional ecological knowledge workshops. Um, uh, throughout the year, we haven't done a pre-conference intensive this year, but you will see those uh, initiatives coming back. And um, that's what I do throughout the year. We have uh, sponsors that help us do this. We have the Aurora Foundation that helps us with the media. We have sponsors here in the Indigenous Forum, the Native American uh, Culture Foundation. We also uh, have tremendous help from the Christensen Fund. We have help from the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians that helped bring the youth here this year, as well as Southern California Edison. So we can't do it without our sponsors. Melissa is going to present our first panel. Uh, we're so happy to have you all here. And if you have any questions, I, I, I'm here always throughout the weekend. So I'm happy to answer your questions and be here for you. Buju, Anin, greetings everybody and welcome to the Indigenous Forum at Bioneers 2013. We are very, very honored and happy to have you all here with us. This is our fifth year of having a sovereign space here at Bioneers for Indigenous programming. And it's such um, an honor to work with uh, Tom Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network. Uh, we started this program five years ago with the support of Kenny and Nina, the founders of Bioneers, who really recognized that indigenous people should speak for ourselves about our own histories, our own issues, and our own, the strength of our cultures. So we're really happy to have this space uh, to share with you. We're also very happy that we are able to hire the first full-time native director of the Indigeneity program, Kara Romero, two years ago and she's done an amazing job bringing in extraordinary partners and youth and tribal colleges. So it's been a wonderful expansion. 
Right now, I'm going to introduce um, this really uh, exciting group of Native leaders from around North America. And we just spent three days together at the North American Community Environmental Leadership Exchange, sponsored by the Global Diversity Foundation and co-sponsored by the Cultural Conservancy, with funding support from the Switzer Foundation and the Christensen Fund. And they're going to speak to you about um, from conflict to collaboration in indigenous territories, looking at tribal strategies for resistance and restoration. Uh, your moderator will be the wonderful Octaviana Trujillo, a Yaqui leader from Northern Arizona University, um, director there of the Applied Indigenous Studies Program. Next, we have Reba Fuller, cultural resources expert with the uh, Tuolumne Miwok. We have Jihan Giran from Black Mesa Water Coalition. Uh, we have Tony Skralunis, Senior Program Officer at the, for the Native American Program at the Grand Canyon Trust. And we have Darcy Hauk, a wonderful Mohawk uh, attorney and partner at her law firm that does a lot of work with local California Indian communities. So we just spent three very um, in exciting days together debating, discussing, dialoguing, sharing strategies, resources, challenges, obstacles for restoring our sacred lands and waters. So without further ado, we will start with Octaviana's overview. But to start in a good way from a native tradition, um, I have asked uh, Kaimana Barkarsi, a uh, Hawaiian board member and ally from the islands, to um, share a, a traditional welcoming uh, prayer and uh, conch blowing. Thank you, Kaimana. <laughs> for um, honoring and blessing this space uh, for the afternoon. Uh, this session will be from 2.45 to 4.15. Um, each of the panelists will uh, speak to the work, their very important work, uh, with their community. And for the last half hour, we're going to open it up for, for comments, questions uh, that you may have for them. And what was suggested um, to, to help us in, in, in getting to all your, your questions and, and comments is that someone's going to be passing out little note cards. And so as uh, the presentations uh, are made by our panelists, um, and if you have any particular question for them, a comment, uh, write them down and someone will be collecting those cards and then we will try to get to as many of those questions, comments that you may have for them. 
again, welcome. Liosem Chanea, muy buenas tardes, and thank you all for, for being part of this session. Um, I work with um, undergraduate students, young people at Northern Arizona University. And as a former tribal leader, um, and I was uh, really a reluctant leader because um, I didn't choose to um, lead our tribal nation. Uh, the decision was made uh, by elders uh, from the community. Um, and I took that responsibility uh, once they asked me to, to be part of, of this important uh, position within the tribe. Um, but I learned tremendously. Uh, it was the most difficult, yet the most rewarding uh, position, uh, responsibility uh, I have had to date. And so once I completed my tenure with the Pasquayaki Tribe of Arizona, um, I was asked uh, by um, tribal leaders, uh, faculty, administrators at Northern Arizona University um, to come help them in developing a very unique um, degree program at uh, Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. They had spent uh, over a year consulting with tribal leaders in Arizona and the Southwest, generally speaking. and. Um, they wanted to find out from the tribal leaders, what is it that we can do at the university in higher education to prepare um, students um, to return back home, um, whether it might be in the rural reservation areas or urban areas? Um, what can we do to, to best prepare them? And they really spoke to how they really needed for young people to, um, to really take that traditional knowledge that has always been part of our communities and to couple that with Western knowledge and that both knowledge, both, both are very good and that this would make them um, tremendous leaders back home, whether it was in the area of, of health and well-being, whether it was um, sustainable development work, uh, whether it was really um, um, working with, with um, uh, children, uh, that all of this was very good, but that they needed to come home with not only the theoretical knowledge base, but tools, skills, usable skills that could be applicable yesterday in tribal rebuilding of nations. And so over the last three days, uh, we've come together um, to really talk about what has worked, what have been the challenges and the conflicts, because there are, have been many, many conflicts in the work that we've done. But how do we bridge those conflicts and how do we come to collaborate in a very unique ways. So you're going to be hearing these stories um, and the important work that has taken place all over the country from some of the, uh, from the four people that are up here with me. And I'm going to begin with Reba Fuller. Uh, Reba is a government affairs specialist. Um, and of course, you know, she was, uh, uh, we were all introduced by, by Melissa. She is with the uh, Tuolumne Band of Miwok Indians here in California. And she's spent many, many years really helping personnel from various agencies, whether they are the state, county, federal, BLM, Forest Service, 
um, National Park Service, whoever those individuals are that represents those entities, those agencies, oftentimes they may not be skilled or prepared themselves to best work with Native American communities, tribal nations, indigenous communities. And so Reba has spent many, many years bridging um, that work so that they do good work in Indian country. So Reba. Thank you. Uh, once again, my name is Reba Fuller. I am the government affairs specialist for the Tuolumne Band of Miwok Indians. And I've been walking this path on cultural resource preservation and governmental affairs for 20 some odd years. The uh, title of my presentation today is Who's Who in the Zoo? <laughs> the tribe's traditional cultural boundary, you want to do the slide? Oh, is, okay, we have duplicate. Is this area, whoops, go back. Is, is this area in the uh, foothills of the Central Sierras. Uh, the dark colored area is where our Aboriginal land is. The striped areas is what we call the shared territory. And I know you can't see it, but there's little dots on there where our uh, reservation and property is located. Uh, I was going to do a presentation regarding how the tribe started a cultural resource department and how we get, began walking down this path from conflict to collaboration. But then I changed my mind because a lot of people are aware of the catastrophic rim fire in the Stanislaus National Forest. Uh, the rim fire has burned 271,171 acres, approximately 402 square miles in the Stanislaus and Yosemite National Park area. They hope the containment date will be October 21st, or excuse me, 27th, and is October 10th. Uh, it has cost $127.2 million for suppression. The next slide is the area where the exterior boundaries of the fire. And I don't know if you can see that very well. There should be a red area around it. Yeah. And so this is, my, this is our homeland. This is where we've gathered, where we've hunted, where we've had uh, villages. And then the next slide is the severity burn map, which identifies hot, medium, and, and low. And this all pertains on how the land will uh, we'll be able to uh, rehab it. Uh, back in the early days, the tribe and the Forest Service had no relation, working relationship whatsoever. We did not trust the government because of all the past actions, so we would never uh, tell them where our, any of our areas were, where they were gathering, hunting, burial, ceremonial, sacred. And uh, all of a sudden, we realized that we were losing a lot of our areas. So in uh, the 1990s, early 1990s, the tribe decided to start a cultural department to start a uh, working relationship between the federal agencies because, as you can see, our homeland is out in the National Forest and it goes up to Yosemite National Park. And this was, was a real trying uh, situation. And of course, you know, in the 90s, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act 
was uh, enacted and that forced a lot of the federal agencies to begin working with federally recognized tribe. And then in 1994, the memorandum of uh, understanding, let's see what the correct title is, uh, memorandum on government to government relationship with Native American tribal governments was, in, was enacted. So uh, Forest Service came to the tribe in 1998 and said, well, we want to start a good faith working relationship, so let's develop two documents. One was for compliance with NAGPRA, and the other one was the memorandum on government to government. So, next slide. <laughs> Okay, well, on the memorandum, uh, or on the government to government, it said, who's who in the zoo? It's the superintendent and the tribal chair. Those are the two high authorities. And then it delegates down the line on who's going to be working with uh, who. It went from there, it went to the uh, uh, tribal program manager for the, uh, for the Forest Service, and it would go to the cultural department of the tribe, and then it went down even further to the rangers, uh, the district rangers, and then down to the heritage department that mainly deals with working with archaeological sites. One of the things that we had to keep reiterating was that the Indians are not necessarily only interested in the pointy little things. A lot of times working with archaeologists, they are only interested in the little pointy things. So then we start telling them, well, what about our gathering areas? What about our sacred areas? You know, what, what about uh, the areas for our ceremonies? And they go, well, you got to give us that information. And of course, with the trust, uh, trust relationship non-existent, we didn't uh, do that. Uh, as this rim fire started, well, see, here's the MOU, and this really sets up uh, a good protocol and a good faith working relationship. We'll go to the next one. And then uh, uh, I've already explained this, and then it sets forth annual meetings. When the Forest Service realized that they had to do an annual meeting and all the departments had to bring their information, they were calling me not very nice names because they said, how could you do this to us? And I said, because I'm tired of inner departments not talking with one another. Uh, Timber was not talking to cultural, so every time they had a project, uh, the heritage department was the last to know, and then they would come and talk with, the, with my Indian community, and there would be problems, so the program or the project was delayed. By having annual meetings, we could see what they were doing seasonally, for the upcoming year, two years, five years, ten years out, and we had time to consult and we could address all of our concerns. If there were some uh, concerns and we could schedule more meetings to specifically deal with, with that. And we were able to facilitate the exchange of relevant information, which meant that we had to do a confidentiality agreement regarding uh, the Archaeological Resource Protection Act because the Forest Service personnel could not legally give us archaeological site records because we didn't have a confidentiality agreement. And another thing that it provided to the tribe was we didn't have uh, the technological information, equipment, or technical personnel to assist us in help defining uh, our concerns. So this, this was another good reason why we had this. And then, so the rim fire started uh, on August 17th, 
2013 and was burning in an area that contained cultural resources that were important to the tribe. I can't I contacted the Stanislaw Heritage Department and expressed concern, made inquiries, and requested updates. The Stanislaw Heritage Department has been in constant communication regarding documented sites as the fire progressed. As soon as the fire entered into an area called Jawbone, we had paramount concern as this area has traditional cultural properties components relating to sacred, hunting, gathering, and ancestral occupation. On September 10th, 2013, to start the uh, fire photos. <laughs> the fire was 80% contained and the burned area emergency response, the bear assessment team was dispatched to create a plan to protect habitat and waterways before the fall rainy season began. The team composed of geologists, botanists, biologists, archeologists, hydrologists, and soil scientists and numbered 50, the largest team ever assembled. The tribe requested a meeting with the team so that we could be aware of how assessments were to be conducted and the results of the assessments and where tribal involvement would be most beneficial. I have learned so much about fire that uh, it, it was eye-opener. Uh, when you have 217,000 acres, how are they going to do assessment? We were explaining they were going to go to 60 different areas and take a sampling. And then they have a model. They feed all this inf information into a model, and then it, it, it either reflects high, medium, or low burn, and then it spits out a plan where they need to address the uh, uh, potential for erosion first. It, it's been really interesting. Our biggest concern was the impact of erosion and water quality. Uh, the Tuolumne River Canyon burned very hot, and if when the rainy season Began, or begins, and if they haven't done proper erosion control, the Don Pedro Reservoir, which is below, or which the Tuolumne River feeds, will be nothing but chocolate soup, and it will more than likely kill off most of the aquatic species that live in the, in the uh, reservoir, which is devastating for, for us. On September 18th, the team made a presentation to the tribe, followed by a field trip to the Jawbone area not our uh, traditional cultural property, it was where the fire actually began, and to Feminine Meadows, a cultural resource area. The tribe representatives had mandated requirements to fulfill prior to entering into the restricted area. The Stanislaw dotted their I's, crossed their T's, and coordinated with the tribe to make it happen. These are the pictures. <laughs> We're still waiting. <laughs> In consultation with the Stanislaw after the assessment was completed and before the bear implementation uh, process began, the tribe requested to have tribal monitors to assist in the assessment of cultural resources that would begin in the spring. We submitted a proposal to fund six tribal representatives to assist in this endeavor. For the tribe, this meant that our tribal monitors would have to be trained to meet higher criteria than just monitors, as we would be performing assessments and documentation of site. Beginning this November, we have scheduled sensitive training for cultural resource specialists. Classes will include in-depth archaeological training regarding site documentation, mapping, the use of GPS and GIS, osteology, and zoology. One of our advantages is that we know uh, the area because this is our homeland and we will document traditional cultural properties that need to be documented in the event of another fire. 
We became aware of a tribe on another uh, that had a fire happen in their area that did not reveal the location of a burial area. And during this fire, uh, they were building a fire break and a bulldozer went right through the burial area. Of course, the native people were very concerned, but had they told the incident commander that they had a burial in that area, they would have moved the fire break. The tribe was very concerned with this action. Ha okay, and I just explained that. The tribe surely doesn't want this, or doesn't want to experience a devastating event like this. The tribe believes that if we had not developed a good faith working relationship with the force, the field trip and the intense involvement we have had would not have come to fruition. The tribe can only sing songs of praise to the Stanislaw National Forest Supervisor, Susan Skalski, and Tribal Program Manager, Kathy Strain, and Bear Team Leader, Sherry Hazelhurst, for their dedicated and continuous efforts to involve the tribe in all, in all activities. We have a long way to go, and the tribe and the Stanislaw will walk hand in hand down the path to reforestation and rehabilitation, as this is our homeland. So it pays to know Who's who in the zoo? Thank you. Thank you, Reva. Reba was so generous with um, her advice to to others in our in our um, group meeting, our gathering, uh, willing to share the templates on the protocol uh, that has helped them to really. Uh, have a unique relationship with uh, Forest Service and other entities so that um, uh, so that it minimizes the conflict that can take place uh, when uh, forest fires like what she described with the rim fire um, take place and uh, helps in, in, in reducing um, the misunderstandings and 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 a tra tragedies that could occur from um, um, actually um, hurting many people, especially um, when it comes to sacred sites and special um, gathering grounds. Thank you, Reba. I'm gonna have Jihad uh, Guerin. She is the um, executive director of the Black Mesa Water Coalition. She's also on the board of the Center for Story-Based Strategy and a steering committee member of the Climate Justice Alignment. So Jihan is going to talk about the work that she has done in Northern Arizona and also the collaborations, the partnerships that she has with other nonprofit organizations um, and with other um, entities that really have helped in addressing um, environmental issues in Northern Arizona. Jihan. Thank you. Hello, okay. Yate? Yeah. Jihan Giran Yenesha. So, hi everybody. My name is Jahan Giran. I'm half Navajo, um, Bitterwater clan on my mother's side, and I'm half African American. So, this is my brother right here. <laughs> and um, uh, as was said, I work for an organization called the Black Mesa Water Coalition. And it's my second year as executive director of the Black Mesa Water Coalition. Um, and I'm just gonna try, I'll tell you a little bit about the issues we work on, but um, I'm gonna try and focus on kind of like, what are the strategies and ideas we have for making things better? And I'm on time myself, because it's really easy for me to talk for a long time. 
Okay. <laughs> See? <laughs> All right. So this is going to be kind of hard, but next slide. Okay. So just so you know very quickly, that's where the Navajo Nation is located um, in the southwestern United States. It's bigger than the state of West Virginia, and it's in Arizona, Utah, New Mexico. Um, there's about, they say, around 250,000 Navajo people who live on the reservation and the same amount who live off the reservation. And this is just to give you a good idea of, you know, the size of this place. Um, how many of you have been there? Oh, awesome. Cool. Come back. <laughs> We're starting a tourism project. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, next slide. Okay, so you kind of can't see it, but this is just a picture of Black Mesa. Um, Black Mesa is one um, region of the Navajo Nation, and our traditional territories we have are surrounded by four sacred mountains that are in Arizona, New Mexico, and two in Colorado. And then within those four sacred mountains, there's also a lot of other um, important places, and Black Mesa is one of them. If you look at our um, traditional homeland as a hogan, or like a home, our traditional home, then Black Mesa and then the Chushka Mountains um, are the man and the woman, the husband and the wife in that home. So Black Mesa is a woman. She's a female deity. And um, so she is like a cultural stronghold for Navajo people um, and a very special place. So next slide. And this is also on Black Mesa. Black Mesa is also home to two coal mines, the Kienta Mine and the Black Mesa Mine. Um, and I think this is the Kienta Mine. This is from when our organization first started when we were um, college students at Northern Arizona University. So next slide. <clears throat> and this is just a little bit about why those coal mines exist. Um, our work started and really focused on the Kienta Mine, which it provided coal to the Mojave Generating Station located in Laughlin, Nevada. That slurry line is why our organization really got started. Because under Black Mesa is the Navajo aquifer, a, a pristine aquifer, um, like the best water you can drink, you know, um, better than the water in your water bottles. Um, and also the sole source of drinking water for Navajo and Hopi communities that exist in that area, because Hopi Reservation is right in the middle of the Navajo Reservation. And so coal was um, pulverized and mixed with water from the Navajo aquifer and pumped 273 miles through that slurry line, which is the only way, uh, the only place in the world that coal was still being transported this way. Um, and that's how we got started, was around protection of the water because it was being used up and contaminated. The other mine is the black, um, yeah, the the Kienta mine, actually, I got them confused, sorry. And the Kienta mine provides coal through train up to Page, Arizona, and it provides water for the Navajo Generating Station. This is the focus of our work now. Um, the Navajo Generating Station is a 2,250 megawatt coal-fired power plant, so it's the biggest coal-fired power plant in all of the western United States. It's huge compared to most um, coal-fired power plants. and. It's also the only coal-fired power plant that is majority owned by our own federal government through the Bureau of Reclamation under the Department of Interior. Conflict of interest, right? Because the Department of Interior is supposed to you know, have a relationship with us tribes, a trust responsibility, as was mentioned earlier. But the reason that the federal government and the state of Arizona and all the Southwest are really dependent on NGS is because it pumps water down through that aqueduct 
Central Arizona Project Canals to Central and Southern Arizona. How many of you guys have been to Phoenix or Scottsdale or Tucson? And it's really huge and developed, right? Did you go golfing? You probably sat in the pool. Um, but this is a big, but it's, but it's also the middle of the desert. It's like the Coyote and Roadrunner desert, you know, <laughs> that you see on cartoons. So they gotta get their water from somewhere. And it's coming from Northern Arizona. It's being stored in Lake Havasu, and then the Navajo Generating Station pumps it down to Central and Southern Arizona. Okay, next slide. Um, this is a picture of when the Mojave Generating Station was shut down and decommissioned. So that was in 2006. And we had a big um, part to play with that as well that I won't really get into, but along with a lot of environmental organizations, I think Grand Canyon Trust was a main organization who um, sued the Mojave Generating Station about its environmental control technologies. On our end, we did a lot of just community education and were able to organize the Navajo Nation government to um, uh, reject Peabody from using uh, the groundwater for transportation anymore. So those kind of like two blows um, were too costly and that plant was shut down. And this is the goal of our work. I think when that happened, we learned a very important lesson because we got a lot of, um, I'm trying not to cuss here, a lot of <laughs> anger directed at us, you know, because of the jobs that were lost at the generating station and the mine. So that was really important. And so we're now having an arm of economic development work of like, what can we do to make sure that we can transition away from a coal economy? Okay, next. Um, oh, this is just a slide of, there's Tony on the left. There's me at the bottom, my mom. But um, this was in 2009. We worked together also collaboratively with Grand Canyon Trust to pass the first um, green economy legislation on a tribal, uh, in a tribal community or government. Um, and so this created a commission and a fund within the Navajo Nation government to start kind of um, jump-starting a lot of the projects that we want to start. This was in 2009. I'll tell you today, it still hasn't been funded. Next. All right, so I'm gonna get into more of the individual um, ideas of our organization that we're working on. The first is the Black Mesa Solar Project. Next. And the idea of the Black Mesa Solar Project is why can't we use all the areas that have gone through mining and are in various stages of reclamation to create a large-scale solar project? Because there is existing infrastructure, and that little circle, that's where um, Black Mesa is. And so we were, were able to create a feasibility study on what the solar potential is in the region. Um, so why can't we use these areas that have gone through mining to create a large-scale solar project? There's existing infrastructure there because of the mining. Um, it has gone through the various, um, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Yeah, compliance and environmental compliances that it needs to go through because of the mining. Um, there's existing buyers of energy, obviously. So there's transmission lines going back and forth across that area, so why not? And also, it can't really be used for anything. I think a lot of the communities who have been relocated from that area are really hoping that they can go back and use it just for like, you know, their sheep and their agriculture. But how many of you have ever heard of uh, an entirely reclaimed mining site of any kind? I don't think, oh, well, we should talk afterwards. Very small, but I think in this, like, this scale, it's not gonna happen anytime soon and we actually, um, had connected with some folks from 
Wyoming who were trying to use their reclamation lands for a large uh, cattle ranching, and all of their cattle died because of the pollution. So if it's already gonna be contaminated, why can't we use this? And you can see that the potential there um, for the site is very, very good. And this, of course, isn't like, you know, we're gonna cover every square inch of Black Mesa with solar panels or anything like that, but um, there's a lot of potential for it. The key also is that we would be owners. And so then that's something that we're trying to figure out is what kind of ownership structures can we create so that it's not just like, oh, we're leasing land to some outside solar company who just pays a little bit for the land and then they make all the profits off of it. But how can we as Navajo Nation and also the local chapters be partial owners in this kind of business? Okay, next. I, I mentioned some of the ideal conditions and um, also that it can create I forget, that feasibility study also had the number of jobs that it could create. So potentially 285 to nearly 3,000 operational jobs and 683 to about 38,000 um, construction jobs. So yes, an argument we always get is, well, that's not as many long-term jobs as coal provides, which is true. However, um, if we can actually be owners in a project like this, we can then take those funds and reinvest in alternative forms of economic development so that we all don't have to be working for energy companies. Okay, next. Oh, whoops, so it was right here. <laughs> but I just explained it to you, so I'll go ahead and skip it. Next. All right, so a couple of other projects that we work on, which are those alternative forms of economic development I just mentioned. This is our Navajo Wool Market Improvement Project. And I, that was our flyer for our wool buy um, last year, which I just think those sheep are just cute. But <laughs> um, the idea of this is, you know, we're saying, what is it that Navajo people already do that we can build on rather than trying to come up with something new, you know? And of course, you guys probably all know that we love sheep, yes? And, uh, <laughs> And there's a lot of wool producers in the region. So, and this came, um, I don't know if I have time to tell this story, but I will. Um, so one of our staff people, Wahela, she just shared with us, hey, I spent a whole week working with my grandma to shear her sheep. And it took them a week of work. They had a whole truck bed full of wool that they were gonna drive into Gallup. And guess how, Gallup was a border town. Guess how much money they got for that? Five dollars? A hundred dollars? One fifty. Eighteen dollars. Eighteen dollars, and it's ridiculous, right? It's like not even enough for gas money on a one-way trip. So we're like, what the heck? And so we did our research of what happens to the wool. A lot of people go and sell it in border towns like Gallup. They then sell it at a big auction in um, Roswell, New Mexico. And people buy you know, big quantities of wool there for, and then they do added services, dyeing it, cleaning it, washing it, and then it goes into a final product. So we're like, how can we cut out all these middlemen, basically, and try and get more of that money back to Navajo people themselves? So we came up with this project. 
And um, there's several slides, so we'll just kind of go through them quickly. So the first step we did is we connected with wool buyers. Peace Fleece out of, uh, I always want to say, Pennsylvania, and then um, Mid-State Wool Growers Co-op. So two, buyer, two big buyers of wool in the United States and developed a partnership with them. They came and started doing presentations in our Navajo communities about what are ways that you can um, change your practices so that you will get better price for your wool. So this is one of the workshops. Here's a shearing workshop we did with the Neck College of like what's the best way to shear your wool so we get a better price. Next, we created, we worked with certain specific families and we built these just like skirting tables which is just like chicken wire on top of a big table to help clean and um, so we did that and we also helped out with a lot of the families. Next. And that's just all the kids really like to stand in those big bags and push down the wool. <laughs> and this is from this year. Last year, we did only one wool buy in Pinyon from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. There was a line of cars the entire time. And we, could, we were shooting for 20,000 pounds of wool. We got 15,000 pounds, um, which was like $13,000, we estimated. Um, and that was that... Um, what most people were getting in the border towns were like as low as 10 cents a pound, but around 25 cents a pound. So the families that we worked with, we were able to get up to $1.25 a pound. So it was really good for them. This year we did four different communities. So this is the one in Tuba City. The police actually had to come because there was just so many people. Next. Just keep going. And so this, we were doing surveys. This is just pictures from the wool buy of the diff and then also just like educational stuff going on about the wool. I don't know if you can even see that. I can't see it from here, but see, we had to get one of those to just push the wool in the truck. And we can pause here. That's a final product from Peace Fleece, which is the um, yarn that was made out of that wool. But this year, we were able to, we worked with 239 wool producers. We got 46,331 and a half pounds of wool. And so that was $34,521.08. They were able to give to communities directly, which is three times as much as the first year. So we'll keep going, and we can just kind of. We also have a food sovereignty project. I'm going to go through this fast because I'm out of time. Um, but basically, there's two parts of this project, which is just to restore a community field in Black Mesa um, using traditional farming methods, so like rainwater catchment systems. Um, and we can just look through them. So here we are building like a spillway. Keep going. And you can see the result of what that is. So using all natural materials during the monsoons, we're able to like hold back the water and have them go through eight different fields this way. And it really just looks like a lake. <laughs> you go out, like, see, that looks like a lake to me. And, um, and then this is the second part of our project, which is just doing mapping. And we were able to start that just barely this summer. Um, going out in the community of Blue Gap in particular, which is one community near Black Mesa, um, and surveying people and also GPS mapping where the fields are, trying to understand what are the, um, the clan histories of the fields, who works them, what state of repair are they in, how much they can produce, why are they not using it, and all of that kind of information. So. That's it. Where are we at with the Navajo Generating Station is the last thing I want to talk about, which is that it's in a very precarious moment because of EPA regulations that have come down on regional haze rulings, potentially carbon dioxide rulings, 
Um, and then also mercury standards. So these are things are all coming down and affecting coal plants all over the country. Um, like I said, because the Navajo Generating Station is owned by the federal government and also has played such a big role in the Southwest, it's a really hard nut to crack. And there have been all kinds of you know, strategies for the next two years to have the Navajo Nation just kind of say, okay, keep, thing going, keep things going as they are. Um, but people's health are really impacted by these plants. This is only one, but our reservation is actually surrounded by seven coal-fired power plants. Our air quality is about the same as the city of Denver, which is ridiculous. So we really need to do something. I want to stop. You can skip to the, to the next, but um, right here. Here's one thing I would ask that you guys do, is to submit comments on the proposed rulemaking on NGS. Um, what we want to do is to use this as an opportunity not to shut down the plant, but to make sure that in 25 years, when the Navajo Nation's lease is up with the plant, that we're not just left holding the bag, that we have no jobs, we have you know, no income, we have no, um, and, and we're stuck with all the pollution from it too. So we're really just trying to use this as a moment to push a transition, um, get the federal government to invest in a transition as part of this whole rulemaking. So I should end there. Thank you guys very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you can see the resistance and uh, resiliency that is needed uh, for this important work uh, that takes place um, all over Indian country. Tony Skralunas uh, is also uh, a board member for the Black Mesa Water Coalition. So it's a really good partnership um, because you need partnerships with um, so many uh, indigenous organizations, indigenous allies for um, well-being, health and well-being um, within those native communities. Um, Tony is the uh, founded the Grand Canyon Trust Native American Program and uh, that particular program um, is to really look at sustainable local economy, economy sustainable development. And he also has led uh, and managed the Colorado Plateau Intertribal Gathering. So he's going to be talking about this important work. Tony. Uh, yeah, Melissa, Tom, says, hello, uh, my name is Tony Scalanis. Um I was just making fun of Tom and uh, Melissa and telling them uh, they didn't tell us we were going to get into a sweat house here. <laughs> uh, I'm joking. It's nice and cool. Um, yeah, this is the work we do. Um, I'm from a, a community called Big Mountain. Um, this is where the mining's um, happening. And uh, we grew up there. I was raised by my great-grandparents. And I'm here with my parents, uh, if they could raise their hand, where they came all the way from, from the res. And also, my, my two daughters, raise your hands. <laughs> I want them to sing later. Um, but uh, um, I asked Jihan to time me. And um, what, what we're, we're doing here is we're working with uh, 10 tribes on the Colorado Plateau. 
the Colorado Plateau is one of the most diverse ecoregions in the world. It's one of the, the, the diverse culturally, environmentally, uh, natural resources, plants, cultures from the uh, eons of time to now. So that's the Colorado Plateau. And uh, we have a project called the uh, Colorado Plateau Intertribal Conversations. Let's go to the next slide. Um, what uh, we started this in 2009, and uh, what um, the tribes talked about was that a long time ago, tribes used to come together. Um, there's the mountain tribes, the desert tribes, the ocean tribes, the canyon tribes, and they would come together and, and trade. They would come together not only trade, but to, to create solutions too. Uh, and that's how our stories grew, that's how our religions grew, but there was a lot of um, relationship of monitoring the land, of, uh, of, of farming techniques, of uh, different medicines, different types of uh, remedies, different uh, architectural styles. Uh, I mean, this was a, uh, there was a big process, and uh, what um, our elders uh, wanted to do was recreate some of that. So that's why we started this process uh, called uh, Intertribal Conversations, and there's our logo down below. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, one of the things that they, the, the tribes have a lot of confidence, and one of the things that they um, always tell us is that, you know, in, in our traditional way, uh, a lot of our, our textbooks don't like to give us the history of what the tribes were able to accomplish here in North and South America, uh, that we had over 100 million people here at one time. That's really a conservative estimate now, finally. Uh, that we had uh, a very sustainable societies. Um, we uh, had um, uh, a lot of traditional science. I know we don't like that word, but we had art research and development farming. We have found places where there was thousands of years of places where uh, people used to uh, work on different techniques of farming techniques and cultivation. Uh, there was whole types of uh, planting of flowers, of fruits, of vegetables, of produce. And with that, uh, the North and South America, we were able to create 70% of the world's foods. That, uh, and so there's a big confidence factor. And you don't just, you know, just haphazardly cultivate food. It takes a lot of work. Uh, there were 200 plants for medicine. And again, the same thing. Uh, we still have a lot of these medicines that uh, uh, our medicine men haven't shared you know, with with the uh, with the uh, with the modern medicine, just because a lot of that has been uh, misused, uh, we have governance. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, younger people. I don't know if you know that our our, our three system uh, setup of government uh, checks and balances, separation of powers, representative government, where you have a group of people and they have a representative that, that sits at the table and makes decisions on your behalf. That governance was was really something that the tribes had really developed to an advanced degree and. That that's what the, the early framers of the U.S. government, they copied that system. So that, that again, that some of that is in the history book. But one of the things that we really um, need to look at is the, the happy, long life um, in, in, in that, that they design in, our, in, in, in tribal life. Uh, we still use that in our ceremonies. We have uh, like Kenelche uh, is a wintertime ceremony where we have 102 yucca that we use in our, our games. Uh, we, 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 in our songs, we say that means may I reach the old stage of my life where my hair is white and I have done, a, I have built a, a, an outstanding legacy with my family and my community 
and everything. So that and that's happiness. That we call the ultimate happiness. So those are the things that that had been um, uh, incorporated. That type of thought had been incorporated into everything, into architecture, into lifeway, into homestead, into village, into ceremony, into how we built our economies, how we built our lives. Let's go to the next slide. Um, our our tribes when they came together, we 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 picked the tribal representatives to this the old way too. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, an ac as I'm an academic, I'm, I'm, I'm educated, and the easy way is let's go pick the tribal leaders, right? Let's go pick so-and-so, they're the chairman of that tribe, that chairman. Uh, our, our elders don't want to do it that way. They said, let's, if we're going to really replicate traditional process, let's do it the old way. So we had to go find the storytellers, the, the master farmers, the sheep herders, the singers, the people that are in charge of the song, the people that are in charge of the dances. Uh, we got people that put on the beard. We have people that put on, that write the songs for certain ceremonies in their tribes. And those are the ones that, that were selected. But we also looked at something else. Were they sharing their knowledge, their story back with their community? Were they a tribal citizen that, you know, that's something that would have been strong a long time ago? And even how we come together, um, it, it's an easy solution for me to say, well, we should have a chairman, we should have a, a vice chairman, we should have Robert's Rules of Order when all these tribes come together. That, that's an easy solution. But they said, no, 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 we got to keep it tribal. We, we can't have one chair. We have to have rotating chair. We have to meet at different tribal lands. Uh, the, the tribes themselves, we have to incorporate elders, we have to incorporate ceremony, we have to incorporate different tribal elements. Every time we come together, we have to do offerings. We have to visit uh, sacred springs. Uh, we Get us out of the, the meeting room. Get us out into the, the land. And that's how we need to have these discussions. So that's what we did. But here's our four focus areas. And this is, we, we, we have really um, uh, pursued these areas. Water, uh, the, the need to straighten the, the, our tribe, tribal people's relationship with water. Uh, we, this is really big. Um, it's really important that our tribal leaders, our tribal uh, the folks, anybody that represents our water needs to know, needs to have an understanding, needs to have a foundation of water, traditional water knowledge. And what is that? That's the prayers, that's the ceremonies, the name of the springs, that's uh, actually working, getting your hands dirty and preparing the springs, uh, working with water and, and doing the proper offerings and knowing the proper philosophy, the proper values of water. So that's really important. Health was a big part too, is that we really need to revitalize our food systems, or the health of our communities? Why are we having these high rates of diabetes, of obesity? Uh, what, what is going on with our tribal communities when we, a long time ago, had a lot of centurion, centenarians? You know, it was common. My grandpa, my mom's father, is now 97 years old. He's still very healthy. But the, 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 only, the thing there is he's still very slim. He's very cultural. He's very positive. He herded sheep almost six miles most days of his life. That's a simple thing. But but we have gotten out of that, you know, and, and our, our, our elders are really concerned about that. So that, that's a big part of our work. We're, we're supporting everything from farmers markets to runs to, and, and we have a, a big community wellness project that's starting to come together among the a lot of these tribal organizations. Uh, language and culture, again, we, we can't, if we can't be uh, have a tie with the land, we can't have uh, a tie with the trees, with the with the waters, with the air. If we don't have our language and culture, and this is something that was um, developed over thousands of years, you know, 
And uh, uh, we, we, it's so descriptive, it's so important to, to have that, that relationship. And so that's a big part of our work is supporting uh, uh, kids relearning the old uh, uh, terminology about everything from plants to farming to, um, to dances. Um, so so that, that's a lot of the work that we're doing. Sacred sites is big too. Um, and there's a whole set of, the, uh, of sacred sites from the, 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 the things that we use in our ceremonies, the way we... Uh, uh, all the way to the ancients and the people that have lived here, the sacred elements, and, and the need to protect them. And find the best tools that are out there to protect those. Let's go to the next one. Um, so what, have, what has resulted out of this process that just tribes just come together and kind of philosophize and, you know, you know um, we, we didn't want to. Our tribes couldn't stand for that. They told me, let's not just meet <laughs> and let's actually do some stuff. So we were able to pull together with, thanks to Christensen, to Packard, other foundations, uh, uh, some dollars to finance about 14 to 15 projects out in the communities uh, uh, and, and actually Find the folks that are doing these things. Find the folks that are actually restoring the springs. Find the folks that are actually teaching the kids about the old farming techniques. So we were able to do that. And that, that really resulted in a lot of progress among the tribal communities. We funded work in 10 different tribal communities. Uh, we've done a lot of work to protect the sacred sites. Uh, we're fighting the ongoing battle to, with the tribes to, to fight the uranium mining around Grand Canyon, to protect Red Butte, to restore springs around the villages. Uh, we are fighting an, a, a battle right now to stop a crazy tramway development into the Grand Canyon, into right next to where the Hopi considered a place of emergence, where the male and the female, the Colorado River and the little Colorado River, where they come together. It's one of the most sacred areas to our medicine leaders. And there's a development that's proposed in there, and we're really in, in the front lines of working with those families to fight that. So, those, you know, uh, that there's a whole bunch of work in sacred sites. Climate change mitigation is a big part of our work. Again, through partnership with organizations like Black Mesa Water Coalition, Tolani Lake Enterprises, uh, many other organizations trying to uh, 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 re keep our food resiliency, keep our farming traditions alive and figuring out how we can do it on the ground. Uh, we have uh, uh, one of the things that, that came up with our group of tribes is that some of these tribes have only a few elders left and a lot of the, um, um, they're really concerned at that knowledge transfer of the old knowledge of the thing that has ensured our sustainable survival for like 15,000 years um, is gonna be lost. And so uh, they've asked us to start recording those now. So we have a team that's trying to capture as much as they can. Uh, we do a lot of work with social entrepreneurship. Um, communities need to, there has to be an incentive for people to, like, like uh, Black Mesa Water Coalition is doing, to have sheep and still take care of the land and herd sheep. There has to be incentives for people to farm, for the, to keep the knowledge of the old food making traditions that affects health, but that also affects food resiliency. So that's a big part of our work in, in doing farmers markets. We ran our first farmers market all summer this 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 summer uh, with a uh, and, and uh, we we have some pictures there at the end, but uh, it, it's really been successful. How much? Okay, thirty seconds. Okay, uh, we're working with ranchers. We were able to uh, help uh, establish a ranch of uh, forty families. We call it fourteen R. Um, Ranch and uh, we we raise the, the the ranchers they raise premium 
beef, um, and they um, but they monitored the land the old way, using the knowledge of you know these are the the the, the certain uh, grasses and here's when we have to let the land rest. Uh, we also monitor every uh, raindrop of, uh, of of rain, and also um, uh, out of that we run the cattle at half carrying capacity. That's a requirement. Uh, that ranch has finally uh, uh, secured uh, customers and is making money, uh, and so we're showcasing that you can uh, do development and actually uh, protect the land. So, uh, but really, the the future of our work, uh, the way we see it, is that there's a real uh, 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 interest in culturally driven protection. That means how do we protect land within our tribal communities? What are the ways to um, find ways to keep the coal in the ground? Find ways to protect big areas of land from uh, more economic development? And then how do we do development that fits with the culture? And luckily, in, in some of our tribes, they have said no to big shopping centers. They have said no to big resorts. Uh, but So they want something better. And that's a lot of our work through this is how, what is the better thing? Uh, the work on the farmers' markets, renewable energy companies, uh, the, even this 14R, we, we presented that work to other tribes. And I've actually sat with their economic development heads of other tribes. And the tribal people will be sitting here and they said, we want what that those guys are doing over there. That's what you guys should be doing. And the, 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 the development heads always said, um, well, the, but that doesn't make money. That's, you know, that's not going to make us money. We can't put solar on the cultural center. We can't do farmer's markets. And here are the cultural people. And that's what social entrepreneurship is. It's not everything has to be about making money. There's also making the culture survive, making that traditional knowledge continue, making the, your people happy again. And that, that is the, 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 what social entrepreneurship is about. And that's what I think we, we can contribute. So here yeah. Thank you, Tony. Tony has been a leader of the intergenerational, intertribal gatherings and really bridging the traditional knowledge to really be very much part of sustainability in the communities that he works with. Thank you, Tony. Darcy Hawk is a partner in the Federick Pebbles and Morgan firm. She's a tribal attorney. She's Mohawk, Ottawa. And prior to um, joining the firm, she um, served as a staff counsel um, at the California Energy Commission. And she also teaches and uh, with many colleges and universities in, uh, in the California area. Darcy. Is this on? Okay. Hi. Um, thank you. I'm Really honored to be here on this panel. Um, I've been asked to make some concluding remarks. I know they want to have time for, for questions, so um, I'll try and keep them fairly short. The theme of the panel today was conflict. It's conflict to collaboration. And as a lawyer, I often deal with a lot of conflict. Um, our firm represents primarily Indian tribes or, or tribal organizations. And a lot of times, we end up in litigation. and. Um, most tribal people know even when tribes go to court and technically win, they lose something when it comes to Western court systems because the system isn't set up for indigenous people. It's set up for 
the people that have basically taken the land and resources away from tribes, and it's their rules that um, tribes often have to play by when you go to court. So coming up with ways on the ground to work with your people in your communities like Reba, Jahan, and Tony have done is, is the way to shift the, par the Western paradigm and really bring back things like traditional ecological knowledge, not just to your own communities, but out to the Western society as well. And situations in the fact that um, we're dealing with things like climate change and the outside society is realizing that immediate gratification is gonna cost more in the end than anybody can afford. And they're gonna have to look at alternative ways of doing things. And projects like Black Mesa and the um, collaboratives that Reba has developed with um, MOUs with agencies where you take the time and educate the um, outside entities, whether it's government decision makers or local community people that have impacts on indigenous communities about what's happening to the resources and why things are important is gonna become critical and is critical to making those changes. And um, indigenous youth are gonna play a key role in that and having to walk in both of these worlds to know who they are as an indigenous people as well as how to come up with a language and a way to bring those messages across to other people that may be in power positions to make decisions that implicate in, um, indigenous communities. And we're seeing that shift and it's a reality and we've seen it in these PowerPoints and um, in the things that indigenous people are doing today. Um, an example in California with the water in Northern California, if you look at the legislation that created the dam systems that exist today, it talks about water being wasted into the ocean. And we're 50 years later and we all know that that water is not being wasted into the ocean. Um, it's needed to maintain the ecosystems and the fish and the things that native people know because it's part of our way of life and who we are. And they were telling the government that for 50 years and today with the fish kills and the other things that we're seeing, um, people are starting to listen. And there's an opportunity for native people to teach Western people about traditional ecological knowledge and how it is science. It's not something that's over here that shouldn't be a part of decision-making and these things are all very critical to trying to come to creating bridges that can end up with collaboration rather than conflict. We're still a long way off, but people can see that what's happening, whether it's hurricanes or typhoons or water contamination or red tide on the East Coast, um, that it's affecting everybody and people need to find a different way of doing things. And there are collaborations out there. Um, Kelly Dennis, who's an attorney working with our firm, who's in the back of the room and probably looking at me like, why are you recognizing me? But um, she's gonna be an amazing leader. She is a brilliant young native attorney from the Shinnecock Nation who is just doing amazing work with her people looking at water rights. And she's definitely somebody to watch um, in the future. Um, the Shinnecock people are building collaboratives with their communities, looking at eelgrass projects. They're dealing with red tide issues, and even though they have conflicts with their outside community, particularly regarding economic development and things like gaming, they also have very strong partnerships and have built relationships with their government officials that are helping support them with programs um, 
dealing with environmental issues because the community needs help. It's destroyed the water and they're looking to the native community to help find answers. And um, I think we're gonna see a lot more of that and I'm hoping that next year we come back here and we see even more positive stories um, regarding native people taking the lead and finding the answers to, to these problems. Thank you, thank you, Darcy. You know, we uh, spent three days on the Josha Dihi Wintum Nation, and um, two people came to uh, uh, speak to our group. One was the former uh, tribal chairwoman of the nation, and the other was uh, the president of a nonprofit community um, uh, community group there in Payday. And they talked about 20 years ago how both groups were at odds with each other, the, far the small farmers um, in that valley, and how they were able to deal with the differences, deal with uh, some of the conflicts uh, with regards to the nation building a casino. And today, they support one another, they help one another, um, and they have built a very unique relationship to coexist in the same valley. And so this is a, was a very important lesson to the work that we all do. We have a couple of questions here. Well, the first one goes to Reba. And the question is, are there stories about fire that are passed down from your elders? And if so, how do they inform your response to the current situation with the rim fire? Well, I wouldn't necessarily call them stories. There's a traditional value with fire. And the uh, elders have talked about the use of fire. And what my people have said about the rim fire is if they would have let us burn like we did when we were in the area, we wouldn't have these catastrophic fires. Uh, I've been really lobbying Washington, D.C. to get more fuel reduction in, and especially let the natives do the fuel reduction projects because they know exactly when to burn, how to burn, and what to burn. So, yes, there are stories, and I am hope uh, next year I'll be successful in getting some uh, fuel reduction projects within our traditional territory. Thank you, Reba. Now, this question goes to any of our panelists. If you could pick one ingredient, one factor that can transform a situation from conflict to cooperation, what would that be? I would give federal agencies glasses and hearing aids because when you, when you work with them, sometimes they cannot see and they do not hear. And I've offered several times. <laughs> Had no takers. <laughs> I guess uh, a good example is uh, uh, we have a casino that was built just outside of Flagstaff. And um, there's been a, a there was a, a real, uh, it was a very hard situation for some of the families there because, it, you know, they were against the idea of giving up so much land that they had traditional use to. Uh, but uh, the, the families uh, stood their ground and they stopped, the, 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 the tribe had to buy land adjacent to it. Uh, but the opportunity there is that the casino buys beef, it has a premium steakhouse, 
Uh, but now that beef that they're buying is from 14R, the ranch that I just told you about. So you, you can actually get a little thing that shows where your, your, your beef comes from, which, whose cow. Uh, but the opportunity uh, for produce, they want to uh, buy from uh, local farmers. They want to, um, the chefs that they're bringing in, they're bringing in a tribal cuisine. They do serve our traditional foods. But, but, but the, the, the opportunities beyond that is, is I think, where the, this, if, if it's done right, there could be community cooperatives that sell to a, a project like that. So it really does benefit us as, as a community people. Right now, the uh, casino is buying everything off for us, you know, and it's, you know, all the toilet paper, everything is from off for us, but uh, we want to, we could change that. And I guess that that's an opportunity there that we could apply to everything, hospitals, schools, um, NH, uh, tribal housing. We buy all our, everything from off res and these could, some of these things could drive our own economies. Okay. I was sitting here trying to think of the right word, and I could only think of restitution. I don't know if that's the right word, but I would say like restitution around past or like historical trauma, because <clears throat> I feel like a lot of our partnerships, um, even just even within our own communities, there's history, and I'm not just talking about like the colonization of America, which that is important, but I'm also talking about like all the policies since then. And also even the things that have happened in our own communities, like for example, around um, the coal mine has created big conflicts between Navajo and Hopi people because they changed the boundaries to get access to coal and created all these conflicts. You know, I would also say even the fact that um, Sierra Club was part of the reason NGS was built, you know, <laughs> because they said, oh, we don't want any more dams on the Grand Canyon. We want, you want it to go you know, build a coal plant on Navajo instead, you know, like they sold us out. And it's like now when people try and create these partnerships with us, it's always like, oh, get over it. You know, that was in the past. And they don't realize that people still have hurt feelings and are still um, suffering the impacts of those things that happen. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, the next, um, the next question says, gracias for the great work it fills me up with hope. My question is unrelated to the material presented, but maybe you would like to take this on. And we did have this conversation, informal conversation at our gathering. How do you support native brothers and sisters who are not recognized by the government? And certainly in California, we, we know many indigenous communities are not federally recognized, and certainly we understand um, the political and uh, uh, other processes that have uh, impeded um, uh, for many to not be federally recognized. So I'll, I'll open it up. Well, the gathering process that I was describing up there, um, we, um, we really the, the, the key there is... Um, preserving our ancient ways and um, sharing again. The tribes want to redo things like the old trade that used to happen, and they want to, in a couple of years, bring tribes together from all over because uh, there, you know, there was shell trade, feathers, buckskins, minerals, salts, things like that that used to be traded. Uh, and, and, and they really don't want it to be just about money. They want to be more, something more honorable. 
And so um, I, th those uh, we've invited the folks from Guam and, and other tribes that are that were at our gathering the last couple of days to, to come to to these gatherings. I mean, we we are having them around water, around farming, and 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 uh, really the more the more people at the table, the better. And and the more the, and there's nothing that limits that work. And from a legal perspective, it's really difficult. The federal government has um, an insanely ridiculous and unreasonable process for federal rec recognition where there's many tribes, particularly in California, that are clearly Indian tribes recognized by the native community, um, even the state and other entities that just can't get through the system because it's so time consuming and um, so costly that if, if you don't have somebody with a lot of money to back you through a system that in some cases has taken 30 years to get through um, in 10,000 pieces of paper, it's, it's almost impossible. And um, without that federal recognition, a lot of tribes and indigenous groups in this country don't have the legal rights that they should be entitled to. Um, there are some state laws that protect tribes that are not federally recognized in regards to cultural resources. Um, in California and in other states, but those rights are, are severely limited without the federal recognition. Um, some laws like NAGPRA do allow federally recognized tribes to sort of act as a, a surrogate for unrecognized tribes and stand in, in the shoes of those tribes to protect their resources or have them returned, but it means that you're relying on somebody else um, to protect your rights, and depending on your relationship with those other tribes, that can either happen or not happen. Um, so that system needs to change. The current Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs is looking at possibly changing the system in a way that makes a little more sense for tribes that are clearly tribes to be able to, to have those rights, but there's still a long way to go for um, unrecognized tribes and indigenous groups in, in the United States. Thank you. Okay, how are, how are you affected, or your community affected, by the government shutdown. Well, it stopped a lot of my projects. I'm currently working on a FERC relicensing on the Don Pedro Reservoir, and we cannot, we have an approximate 15 acre burial area that we need to riprap. And the only way we can get access to the area is through BLM, so we were not allowed to uh, progress with our project and we're just hoping that now that it's open, we can get to it immediately because it will impact, uh, have severe impacts if we don't get, get it covered. It'll continually uh, erode and uh, more items and human remains will be exposed. And working with the Forest Service, that's come to a halt. So it, it's been quite a bit. Indian Health Service, uh, they're being closed. It's had an impact to our health clinic. So there, there are a lot of ramifications from the federal government closing for a for a tribe. Um, federal employees shop at shopping centers on the res. <laughs> um, the the tourist flow actually we studied a lot of this. So um, the tourist flow from the west coast is through Grand Canyon out to places like Monument Valley to New Mexico. So Grand Canyon. Has a you, you pass through Grand Canyon to get to the res, 
and that a lot of that was closed down. So there, there was a serious impact from, I, 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 I don't know the numbers, but uh, I'm pretty darn sure there was a serious impact to um, the reservation in terms of tourism. Okay, uh, this question is for Jihan. Why um, are the, or are the abandoned mines uh, up in Northern Arizona, are they, are, are they designated uh, super fun sites? the ones that you're working with? Um, I don't believe they're designated Superfund sites. Um, there are a lot of Superfund sites around <laughs> the reservation, though, because, you know, there's history of other types of development, particularly uranium mining, that there are a lot of Superfund sites. Um, but no, I, I, as far as I know, they're... But I'm trying to learn a lot more about just reclamation of mining lands because... Like I said, I don't know of any area that has been reclaimed to like a pristine environment. And then I grew up in a community called um, Sawmill, Arizona. And so I always say my, my border town is Gallup, New Mexico. And in between that drive from Windrock to Gallup, there's also a mine there too um, that my uncle worked at, I think PNN mine. Um, but that's where I can see like what reclamation looks like. And it just looks kind of like rolling hills with piles of rocks on it. Um, but I, I, I don't understand really, like, what are the standards for reclamation? Um, and as far as I know, all they do is just kind of, like, cover it up. Cover it up with a layer of dirt that could be even just as small as a few feet thick. And then, like, plant, you know, natural shrubs. And that's all that they're really required to do. Okay. Uh, this is for um, uh, the technical people here. If you could put up that... Um information from uh, Jihan's presentation, the uh, US EPA address, I think uh, there's some interest. Um, so if someone could just put it up and you can um, get the information from the screen. And then the next question is, okay, is it possible to do volunteer work on reservations? Uh, yes, we have a grandcanyontrust.org. Um, and I have some brochures on our, our organization. We um, have a, a very um, uh, f uh, a good volunteer program. Uh, we can uh, hook you up with uh, everything from working with the farmers to we do renewable energy projects um, um, where we actually build re um, renewable energy systems for families. And we partner with some of the companies that are tribally owned. And one of them is Shanto has a, a quite a, a strong program. Where and, and we we always have volunteer projects. Uh, we do a lot of work on restoration of the land, uh, ranches, and things like that. And and we have a whole set of, of a schedule. We really um, you camp out out on the land. You interact with the people. You you work really hard. We'll feed you, and uh, we'll transport you out. But uh, that that's uh, GrandCanyonTrust.org is where our program's at. And we don't have a program, but we'll take volunteers. <laughs> and especially during the spring and summer months, we're really busy with all this stuff kind of like outdoors on the land. We need a lot of help. Um, so, yeah, we definitely would be open to meeting with people, and you could just come talk to me. Okay, this next question is to uh, Reba. Most government agencies have funding issues, especially for native consultations. Tribes usually have far less even than that. How is the consultation continuing in the continuing uh, funding crisis? 
we've been rather lucky. We haven't had any uh, any uh, major problems. Uh, the tribe usually requests a federal agency to come to uh, the tribal administration offices. So far, it's been uh, really good. We keep the meetings brief. We do a lot of work uh, via email regarding our documents. Uh, if the tribe, the tribe pays our tribal representatives to go consult uh, with federal agencies, it's been a two-way street, so we haven't really had uh, a lot of problem with, the, with funding when it comes to consultation because we so strongly believe in it. Okay, this is uh, for Jihan. It's hard for many in the environmental and sustainable movements to imagine tribal communities being in conflict with renewable energy projects. But in Southern California deserts and other places, these projects are harming cultural places. How is a Navajo solar project protecting the tribe's culture? That's a good question. Um, I always, and I would say that some of the communities are not in favor of a solar project. I mean, we do have to go out there and talk to people, and we do get lots of opposition for this idea, so it's not really like everybody gets along and agrees with it or anything. And people have very legitimate concerns. I think it's just because, not just because, but in part because of the history of what coal mining has done to communities. And so people have really lost their confidence in projects like this, um, that they're not going to be taken advantage of, um, and also thinking that they're going to be able to just go right back on the land and it's going to be exactly the way that it is, which is not true. And there is actually um, a lot of propaganda that's being put out there by the fossil fuel and the coal industry on Black Mesa. Um, I know that there's a video going around saying like, uh, that's going around to the families about how solar is really bad and we've had some of the mine workers share with us what they learned that um, solar power um, creates radiation and you can get cancer from solar power and there's, so there's a lot of misinformation that happens um, and a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and, and I just think also, um, just like a colonized mind of you're less likely to believe your own people than you are to believe an outside white person. You know, I'm sorry to say it, but I think that that really exists. And we were sitting in a meeting last fall with the resources committee doing a presentation on the solar project. Um, before us, Peabody Coal Company was presenting and saying, oh, we need extended time to do our environmental impact report. And so every okay, fine, you know, check. And then when we came up to give our presentation, man, the community just attacked us. You know, <laughs> like, well, how do you know you're not taking advantage of us? How do we know that we're gonna benefit? And so that was something that was pointed out to them, was like, man, you guys didn't say anything to Peabody. You guys are so upset about your health and your water and the land and the impacts that you've had because of Peabody, but you're not saying anything to them. And they're right here. They put it on us, you know? So I think it's, um just an ongoing education. And one thing that we want to do too is just to take people to, um, to some of these other solar project sites that are going on um, in Utah. Who is that tribe? There's a tribe that recently um, transitioned their coal plant to a solar plant in Utah. And so we want to just do a tour, you know, have people come and speak out about their experience, 
um, and have people make their own decision. Like we don't believe in force feeding people anything. Um, but this is our idea, and I think that they should know all the information they have about it and compare it with what they know about coal and make a decision for themselves. And I also understand that large-scale solar projects aren't, you know, the big solution. I think large-scale anything is pretty dangerous, and I understand that too. But I also see ourselves as we're in a transition period, and this is what we're doing is we're experimenting. We've been here, we want to get here, how do we do it? And that's by trying things out and being realistic that we're not going to move straight into some sort of utopian society. Um, and so that's the things that we're struggling with and experimenting with. So, And I would say that there is a solar project that's being proposed on the New Mexico side of the reservation that the community there is really opposed to as well. So always you have to just listen to what the community is saying, but give them all the information they have to make an informed decision. I'd like to speak just one minute about that, uh, Southern California Solar Project. What happened there was that the United States Government Department of Energy and United States Government Bureau of Land uh, Management did a handshake and they didn't do consultation. So that's what's caused all the conflict with the native communities down there. Had they done the proper process for the National Historic Preservation Act and consulted with the tribes first, we wouldn't have this conflict going. But because President Obama made a deal with BLM and DOE, that's, that's, that's what's caused, caused the problem. And how they're gonna entangle it is far beyond, beyond me. So the tribes have to understand the proper process for projects when they come down the pike and not stand, or not allow these backdoor handshakes to happen and then we receive the repercussion from their from their doings. Yeah, I think that's really important to note that this is land that's sacred to these tribes that was basically taken by the federal government, that the federal government made decisions without following even their own laws on um, consulting with tribes or including them in any kind of planning process in its greenfield, undeveloped land that they're going to be destroying supposedly in the name of helping the environment by putting environmentally friendly energy there, which is very different than looking at an alternative for a landscape that's already been developed with something like coal and letting a community decide for itself whether putting something like solar there is going to create a benefit that's going to be better than what was forced on them in the first place. Well, the, uh, one of my prior jobs was I used to be head of commerce for the nation, for Navajo Nation. And um, I, I, we, we worked a lot on utility scale renewable with our tribe. And just like any developer, you have bad coal-fired developers. You have bad <laughs> power companies. Most of them are bad. But <laughs> there's, there's, there's unscrupulous uh, solar developers, too. They, 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 and they, they really hurt our nation. Uh, a lot of these projects that I was telling you about how we do solar projects, we're having to replace some bad systems out on our reserve um, companies. Tribe gets a grant, they buy, they, 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 they go and bid out and they, and, and they get ripped off by the, these outside solar companies that sell us the cheapest solar panels, cheapest batteries, jam them all in, 
charge our tribe twenty thousand dollars, and and it really has um, been a put a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of our people. So now we're trying to change that. We're trying to create our own local companies with good maintenance agreements and selling quality products. That that also translates to the utility scale. Because there's bad developers that, again, won't give the tribe... A lot of our communities want to own these things. You know how they do in Europe, where the, the villages and the communities own these, these um, uh, uh, wind turbines and, and, and these different projects? Out here, they, that are, a lot of our elders, they, they, you know, when we give a presentation to our elders, like the grandmas, you know, with their hair buns and their, their, their skirts, they'll be saying, we want to own one of those. How do we own one of those? And it's like, well, if you're in Europe, it'd be easy. But here, we, we have to work through but, but some things. And, and, but a lot of these developers don't, don't offer the tribe that transparency, that they don't really help the community think through that deal. And a lot of them do wine and dine our leaders. We've had wind projects fall apart where we spent years putting one project together. Then another company comes in and they, um, they wine and dine the tribal officials and the whole thing just gets stalled. And, and so, so those kinds of things happen. So, uh, but that's just, it's just, you know, you got to have good leaders. You have the, good, have the, have the right negotiators. You, if you want your community to co-own a project like this, you really better put some good people like, like Jahan and, and Darcy on, on your team. Talking about leaders and leadership, the last question is for Reba. It says, do you think any of your success was due to the fact that the two major players, tribal leader and head of Stanislav, were women? Uh, <laughs> no. Both of the, due to the success was done by the men for uh, the signatures. They, we have a uh, Kevin Day is our tribal chairman, and uh, Ben Delavar at the time was the tribal uh, supervisor. But I will contribute our success to their mamas because they taught them <laughs> right to treat a woman. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for joining us in this important panel and the panelists. Thank you all so much. That was an absolutely wonderful panel. Um, just so you know, we will be uh, editing the content from the Indigenous Forum, and it will be available uh, with our multimedia um, collections over in the store for order. We have past Indigenous Forums over there, and we're working on rich new content for our new media site and website. We have a 15-minute intermission now. You're more than welcome to wander around. I'd love for the Native youth to meet me outside over here. Uh, and we're going to caucus for a minute and talk a little bit about what we learned in this panel and uh, a few other things. Please join us back here at 4.30 uh, for a very special panel with Tom Goldtooth, Eddie benton Benes, and Mona Polaka. And just one last note, please, please, please fill out your surveys and return them. Uh, they keep the indigenous program here uh, at Bioneers central to the mission, and they provide feedback to my superiors so they know how much we all love this and how important it is. <laughs>